Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 4. Last week, I covered what remained to be told about the judge Gideon, along with one of his 70 sons, Abimelech, who, according to the text, ruled over Israel for three years before he was killed by a millstone, followed by a servant's sword. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the judges who followed him. And with that, let's get started. The beginning of Judges chapter 10 is succinct and points out how we know so much about some of the people of the era and so little about others. Abimelech, who wasn't even a judge and ruled over part of Israel for only three years, his history was recorded in over 1,600 words. Next up, according to chapter 10, was the judge Tola. All we're told about him was that he was the son of Pua, son of Dodo, was from the tribe of Issachar, lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, rose to deliver Israel, and was a judge for 23 years, with nothing said about what happened in that time. When he died, he was buried in his hometown. And that's it. Next up was a judge named Jair, the Gileadite. Like Pua, there's not much recorded about him either. He judged for 22 years. Then, a little detail that, like much of the Old Testament, likely added context and meant something to the readers in that era, but is lost on us. Well, at least on me. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and lived in 30 towns in Gilead. My guess is that that meant they were somewhat rich and powerful. But then again, they were donkeys, not iron chariots. Maybe they were middle class. The towns where they lived all would end up being referred to as Havath Jair, to this day, whenever that was. When Jair died, he was buried in Cayman. So, these two judges were in power for a total of 45 years, and merited only some 90 words total. It's unclear if they judged at the same time over different parts of Israel, or if it was consecutive. Note that this time span was longer than the Exodus and the Wanderings, stories that took up several books of the Pentateuch, but of these two guys, we know almost nothing. It was almost a dark age of history, at least in the biblical text. After this, the Israelites reverted to what you knew they would do, worshipping the Canaanite deities Baals and Astartes, along with the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, but not their god, their deliverer. And you know what's coming, as he's already told him that he's a jealous god. He gets angry and sells them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. There's an odd little phrase in the text, and that's that God turned them over to their enemies that year. In my mind, it refers to the specific year that the last judge mentioned, Jair, the year that he died. Rather specific for an ambiguous part of the text. That year, whichever year it was, the Philistines and Ammonites crushed and oppressed the Israelites. They would maintain control over the Israelites for 18 years, 
ruling over an area said to include the land beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. Then, an interesting tidbit. The Ammonites would also cross the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. What this tells me is that in these 18 years, they, meaning at least the Ammonites, did not control all of Israel, only, or maybe mostly, that east of the Jordan, save what were likely skirmishes with three tribes to the west of the river, which was also where the Philistines lived. At some point after this, the Israelites come to their senses and cry out for help, admitting that they have abandoned God and worshipped foreign gods. There's no mention of the other regional deities they also turn to. God answered them with a reminder that he not only delivered them from the Egyptians, but also the Amorites, Ammonites, and Philistines, plus the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Monites. That last one seems to be a new addition to the list. These were people from the region known as Mon. I'll cover the little known about them in this chapter of the podcast. God was more than a little fed up with their repeated cycle of turning from him, getting themselves in a pickle, crying out for help, being rescued, and then turning away again. He tells them, and this is a quote, You have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. If this were a movie, this would be when the music would change to a more ominous tone. The Israelites didn't relent, though, telling God, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, but deliver us this day. They put away the foreign gods from among them and worshipped the Lord. He could no longer bear to see Israel suffer. After this, but we're not told how long afterwards, the Ammonites were called to arms and camped near Gilead. At the same time, the Israelites came together, probably meaning several tribes united, and encamped at Mizpah. The commanders of the people of Gilead said to one another, who will begin the fight against the Ammonites. He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Essentially, if you're brave or crazy enough to be at the front of the charge, and you live, we'll make you our leader. Which is the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11 picks up with an introduction to Jephthah, which takes us back in time. Right out of the gate, we're told he wasn't from the best of families. While he was a Gileadite and a mighty warrior, he was the son of a prostitute. His father was Gilead, the same name as the city, a name also shared by a few other people in the Old Testament, one of which was the grandson of Manasseh. As for this Gilead, he was married to someone other than Jephthah's mother, a woman who bore an untold number of sons. These sons were not accepting of their half-brother, point-blank telling him that he would not inherit anything from their father, since they didn't all have the same mother. There was likely more to this, probably the threat of violence, as we're told that Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. But we can't forget that despite this, 
or maybe because of it, he was considered a great fighter, to the point that men deemed outlaws gathered around him, and he would lead them on raids. What's implied in this is that they were marauders, raiders, banditos. Then, we're taken back to the present day in the narrative via a single sentence. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. Seeing how the Ammonites had assembled, the elders of Gilead retrieved Jephthah from the land of Tob, telling him, Come and be our commander, so that we may fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied, Are you not the very ones who rejected me and drove me out of my father's house? So why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders were a bit curt in their reply, telling Jephthah, Nevertheless, we have now turned back to you, so that you may go and fight with us and fight the Ammonites, and become head over us, over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah set his terms, telling the elders, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Which was essentially the offer they had made. Their reply was just as straightforward. The Lord will be witness between us. We will surely do as you say. Deal struck. Jephthah headed back to Gilead with the elders. As soon as they arrived, Jephthah sends messengers to the Ammonite king, asking their leader, What is there between you and me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king had a quick and rational reply, because Israel, when they came back from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabuk and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably. He wanted his land back from the people he considered to be invaders. Jephthah continued the conversation via his messengers, telling the Ammonite king, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, asking him to let them pass through his land, but the king of Edom refused. The same thing happened with the king of Moab, so the nation continued to encamp at Kadesh. They would eventually go around Edom and Moab, taking the wilderness route, finally stopping on the east side of Moab, which placed them on the far bank of the Arnon River. This route kept them from entering Moabite territory. At this point, messengers were sent to the Amorite king Sihon, asking for permission to pass through his territory. Once again, permission denied. Then the Israelites battled and defeated the Amorites, allowing the Israelites to capture, then live in what had been Amorite territory. Then Jephthah delivers a message that amounts to a short speech, one full of history and cultural context. One that I'll unpack in the deeper dive. He told the Ammonite king that the Israelites occupied all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabuk, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So now the Lord, the God of Israel, has conquered the Amorites for the benefit of his people Israel. Do you intend to take their place? Should you not possess what your God, Kamush, gives you to possess? And should we not be the ones to possess everything that the Lord, our God, has conquered for our benefit? 
Now, are you better than King Balak, son of Zippar of Moab? Did he ever enter into conflict with Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon, and its villages, and in Araro, and its villages, and in all the towns that are along the Arnon, three hundred years. Why did you not recover them within that time? It is not I who have sinned against you, but you are the one who does me wrong by making war on me. Let the Lord, who is judge, decide today for the Israelites or for the Ammonites. Essentially, the Ammonites had lost territory to the Amorites before the Israelites arrived. Despite this recitation of what may have been mutually accepted history, the Ammonite king did not heed the message that Jephthah sent him. Before heading into battle, apparently Jephthah was worried, maybe wondering what he had gotten himself into. So, he made a vow to God, one where he promised that if God would guide him to defeating the Ammonites, then whoever was first to come out of the doors of his house to meet him, after he returned from victory, he would sacrifice that person to God as a burnt offering. After making the vow, Jephthah led his men to battle with the Ammonites. As you could probably guess, the Israelites won in a victory described in the text as being massive. Following the victory, Jephthah returned home, where his daughter, who was his only child, was the first to come out to meet him. I've mentioned the next several passages a few times, and they're a bit disturbing, so I'll avoid the rehash. Just know that he keeps his vow. Yet another reason you should be careful before making a vow. You never know how it will turn out. This story is given as the explanation as to why for four days every year, the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah. And that's Judges chapter 11, but we're not quite done with Jephthah. Chapter 12 begins with the headline, Intertribal Dissension, at least in the New Revised Standard. And what happened next was eerily similar to Gideon, right down to the other tribe he had made mad. The men of Ephraim took up their weapons, traveled to Jephthah, and asked him, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down over you. It seems everyone was interested in a piece of the glory. Jephthah said to them, My people and I were engaged in conflict with the Ammonites, who oppressed us severely. But when I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And I'm going to pause here just for a second to point something out. This is yet another place where it is implied that only portions, specific tribes of the Israelites, were oppressed by this group or that. In this case, the Gileadites were certainly oppressed by the Ammonites, but it seems, at least the text can be read in a way that implies the Ephraimites were not oppressed by the Ammonites. The dialogue between the Ephraimites and Jephthah continued, with the warrior explaining the rationale, along with how it all unfolded. When I saw that you could not deliver me, meaning the Ephraimites were initially nowhere to be found, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? 
Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim, with the Gileadites coming out on top. And this is where the headline for the chapter, Intertribal Dissension, comes from. Israelites fighting Israelites. The men of Gilead would take from Ephraim the control of the fords of the Jordan River. Controlling access to the river held a significant strategic value. This is seen in a rhetorical challenge mentioned in the chapter, which also gives further insight into the cultural and language differences between the various tribes. Whenever one of the men of Ephraim said, Let me go over the river, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth, and he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Shibboleth, Sibboleth. Then they killed him at the fords of the Jordan. Forty-two thousand of the Ephraimites fell at that time. What's unclear is if the forty-two thousand fell on the day of the battle or when they tried to cross the river, though both of these could have been a singular extended event. Circling back to Jephthah, he would judge Israel for six years until his death. He was buried in his hometown of Gilead. The last few verses of chapter 12 cover three different judges. After Jephthah was the judge Ibzan, who was from Bethlehem. The text makes it seem like the Israelites didn't follow their established pattern of turning from God, then crying out for rescue. Instead, in this case, it at least seems there was an immediate, or at least quick, transition from Jephthah to Ibzan. The latter had some 30 sons and 30 daughters. It's recorded that all of his sons and daughters married outsiders, meaning people from outside his family. While to us that may seem like a given, it was unusual enough in that era that it was recorded for posterity. Since he was from Bethlehem, he was likely of the tribe of Judah, though the city was very close to its border with Benjamin. Note, the text doesn't indicate either, or any tribe for that matter. Ibsen judged the people for seven years, until his death. He was buried in his hometown. Next up was Elon, who was from the tribe of Zebulun. He would serve as a judge for ten years, until his death, when he was buried at Ajehan. The last judge introduced in chapter 12 is Abdin. He's the son of Hillel and described as a Purithonite, meaning he was from the town of Purithon. Unfortunately, the location of this place has been lost to the passage of time. He was likely an Ephraimite. More on that in a minute. Like Jair, who I mentioned earlier in this episode, we know a little something about him. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode 70 donkeys. I'm still at a loss to explain what that meant. Usually, when something like this is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's meant to convey wealth. But 70 men with a donkey each is a bit underwhelming. I think what's more telling is that they had a donkey to ride and didn't have to walk everywhere. Maybe. Abdin would be a judge until his death, eight years total. When he died, he was buried in his hometown, which was said to be in the land of Ephraim. 
then an added bonus on the location. It was also in the hill country of the Amalekites. So, in the territory allocated to Ephraim, but they either never gained control over it or lost it at some point. And those are the judges in chapter 12. Jephthah followed by three more judges, all seemingly without interruption. Chapter 13 begins the narrative of what's likely the most well-known judge. I don't know if time will allow the complete story in this episode, so I'll do my best, but no promises. More likely, it'll be split between this episode and the next. The Israelites, after the four consecutive judges, fell into their recurrent pattern. As a result, they would be ruled over by the Philistines for 40 years. Towards the middle to end of this period, a legendary story unfolded. There was a man from the city of Zorah, from the tribe of Dan. His name was Manoah. He and his wife had no children. At some point, the angel of the Lord, remember the distinction, appeared to the woman and said, Although you have no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean. No razor is to come on his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. Pausing for a second. I covered Nazarites in Chapter 5, Episode 20, released in January 2020. Unpausing. The angel of the Lord continued, It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman went and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel of God, most awe-inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, and I'll avoid repeating what the angel said, and then she repeated. They are essentially verbatim. Manoah, the unnamed woman's husband, then prayed, O Lord, I pray, let the man of God, whom you sent, Come to us again, and teach us what we are to do concerning the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of God came down again to the woman as she sat in the field, but her husband was not with her. So she quickly ran and told her husband, The man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah got up and followed his wife, and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? The angel replied affirmatively. Then Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the boy's rule of life? What is he to do? The angel told him, again, the details of how the woman is to remain ceremonially clean. Repeated, repetitious redundancy. But that's how memory devices work. Manoah then tells the angel of the Lord, Stay, and we will prepare a kid for you. The angel answered, If you keep me, I will not eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Then, parenthetically, we're told a little clarifying detail. Manoah did not know that this was the angel of the Lord. Manoah then asked, What is your name? so that we may honor you when your words come true. He answered, Why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful. 
Manoah then took the baby goat with a grain offering and presented it on the rock to God. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame while Manoah and his wife looked on, and they fell on their faces to the ground. I think it was finally becoming clear to them that this wasn't an angel, but the angel. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. It was only then that Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. He told his still unnamed wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Ponder that. Judges 13 wraps up with the woman finally bearing her son and naming him Samson. He would grow following Nazarite traditions. We're even told the city where he lived, Mahanadan, which was obscure enough that we needed to be told it was between Zorah and Eshtael. And that's it for this week. Join me next week when I'll continue the story of Samson. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.